Welcome back to the Vale of Cedars. Today's episode, we're reading chapter 6, and we get back into the action of the story. Last week, we learned about Marie and the Enriquez family as a whole, as well as her familial relationship to Ferdinand Morales. And this week, we spend time in the Vale and explore the relationship between Marie and her father. And then for the post show, I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about some of the Jewish customs that are mentioned in this week's chapter. Thank you for listening, and hope you enjoy. The Veil of Cedars, Chapter 6 Oh, praise me not, look gently on me, or I sink to earth, not thus. De Chatillon It was the custom of the inmates of the Vale of Cedars, once in every year, and generally about the season of Michaelmas, to celebrate a festival which ordains the erection of a booth or tent of branches of thick trees, in which for seven days every meal was taken, and the greater part of the day, except the time passed in the little temple, was spent. Large branches of the palm and cedar, the willow, the acacia, and the oak, cut as to prevent their withering during the seven days, formed the walls of the tent, and their leaves, intermingling overhead, so as to form a shelter, and yet permit the beautiful blue of the heavens to peep within. Flowers of every shade and scent formed a bordering within, and bouquets, richly and tastefully arranged, placed in vases filled with scented earth, hung from the branches forming the roof. Fruit, too, was there. The purple grape, the ripe red orange, the paler lemon, the lime, the pomegranate, the citron, all of which the veil afforded, adorned the board, which for those seven days was always spread within the tent, intermingled with cakes made by Marie. This was one of the festivals for which many of the secret race would visit the veil, but it so happens that this year Manuel, his child, and their retainers kept it alone. A source of disappointment and anxiety to the former, whose health was rapidly, but still to his child almost invisibly, failing. At the close of the solemn fast which always preceded by five days this festival of rejoicing, he had had a recurrence of his death-like fits of insensibility, longer and more alarming than usual, but he had rallied, and attributed it so naturally to his long fast that alarm once more gave place to hope in the heart of his daughter. Not thus, however, felt her father. Convinced that death could not be long delayed, he but waited for his nephew's appearance and acknowledged love for his cousin at once to give her to him, and prepare her for the worst. Parental anxiety naturally increased with every hour that passed, and Ferdinand's appeared not. It was the eve of the Sabbath, one from which in general all earthly cares and thoughts were banished, giving place to tranquil and spiritual joy. The father and daughter were alone within their lovely tent, but both so wrapped in evidently painful thought that a strange silence usurped the usual cheerful converse. So unwonted was the anxious gloom on Manuel's brow that his child could bear it no longer, and flinging her arms round his neck, she besought him in the tenderest accents to confide in her, as he had ever done since her mother's death, to tell her what so pains him. Might she not remove it? 
Enriquez could not resist that fond yet mournful pleading. He told her that he felt health was departing, that death seemed ever hovering near, but that its pain, its care, would all depart. Could he behold his long-cherished wish fulfilled, and his Marie the wife of Ferdinand, whose every look and tone during his last visit had betrayed his devoted love, Marie heard, and her cheek and lips blanched to such ashy whiteness that her father in alarm folded her to his breast and sought to soothe a grief, which he believed was occasioned merely by the sudden and fearful thought of his approaching death, and sought to soothe by a reference to the endearing love, the cherished tenderness, which would still be hers. How Ferdinand's would be to her all, aye, more than all, that he had been, and how, with love like his, she would be happier than she had been yet. Much he said, and he might have said still more, for it was long ere the startled girl could interrupt him, but when he conjured her to speak to him, not to look upon his death so fearfully, the beautiful truth of her nature rose up against the involuntary deceit. It was not his death which thus appalled her. Alas, alas, and she hated herself for the fearful thought. She had almost lost sight of that in the words which followed. Breaking from his embrace, she sunk down on her knees before him, and burying her face upon his hand, in broken accents, and with choking sobs, revealed the whole. How could she do her noble kinsman such fearful wrong as to wed him, when her whole heart, thoughts, nay, life itself, seemed wrapped in the memory of another? And that other? Oh, who? What was he? Once she looked up in her father's face, but so fearful were the emotions written there, wrath, struggling with love, grief, pity, almost terror, that hastily she withdrew her glance and remained kneeling, bent even to the dust, long after the confessions had been poured forth, waiting in fear and anguish for his words. Marie! Marie! Is it Marie? My dear sainted Miriam's child, who thus speaks? Who hath thus sinned? Sole representative of a race of ages, in whose pure thoughts such fearful sin hath never mingled. My child, so to love the stranger as to reject, to scorn her own? O oh God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Would I had died before? And the heavy groan which followed confirmed the anguish breathed in those broken words. Father, implored the unhappy girl, clasping his knees in an agony of supplication, though she raised not her head. O oh, my father, in mercy do not speak thus. Words of wrath, of reproach, fearful as they are from thee, yet I can bear them. But not such woe. O oh, think what I have borne, what I must still bear. If I have sinned, my sin will bring, nay, it has already brought its own chastisement. Speak to me, but one word of love, or, if it must be, wrath, but not such accents of despair. Her father struggled to reply, but the conflux of strong emotions was too powerful, and Marie sprung up to support him as he fell. She had often seen him insensible before, when there appeared no cause for such attacks. But was it strange that at such a moment 
she should feel that she had caused it? That her sin perchance had killed her father? He might never wake more to say he forgave, he blessed her. Or in those agonized moments of suspense, she vowed that if he might but speak again, that his will should be hers? Even did it demand the annihilation of every former treasured thought? And the vow seemed heard. Gradually, and it appeared, painfully, life returned. His first action was to clasp her convulsively to his heart. His next, to put her gently, yet firmly from him. And bury his face in his hands. And weep. No sight is more terrible, even to an indifferent spectator, than to behold tears wrung from the eyes of a man. And to his child, it was indeed torture. But she controlled the choking anguish. Calmly and firmly she spoke, and gradually the paroxysm subsided. That I have sinned in loving a stranger thus, I have long felt she said, and had I been aware of the nature of those feelings, they should never have gained ascendancy. But I awoke too late. My very being was enchained. Still, I may break from these engrossing thoughts. I would do so. Pain shall be welcome, if it may in time atone for the involuntary sin of loving the stranger, and the yet more terrible one of grieving thee. O oh, my father, do what thou wilt. Command me as thou wilt, I am henceforth wholly thine, and thou wilt wed Ferdinand, my child. Would he still wish it, father, if he knew the whole? And is it right, is it just, to wed him, and the truth still unrevealed? Oh, if he do love me, as you say, how can I requite him by deceit? Tell him not, tell him not replied Enriquez, again fearfully agitated. Let none other know what has been. What can it do, save to grieve him beyond thy power to repair? No, no. Once his and all these fearful thoughts will pass away, and their sin be blotted out, in thy true faithfulness to one who loves thee, his wife. And I know that thou wilt love him, and be true as if thou hadst never loved another. I, could not I be true, I would not wed, murmured Marie, more to herself than to her father. And if suffering indeed atone for sin, terribly will it be redeemed. But, O oh, father, tell me, I have sworn to be guided by thee, and in all things I will be. Tell me, in wedding him whom thou hast chosen, do I not still do foul wrong, if not to him? Her voice faltered. Unto another, whose love is mine as well? Better for him, as for thee, to wed another, Marie. Wouldst thou wed the stranger? Wert thou free? She buried her face in his bosom and murmured, Never. Then in what can this passion end but in misery for both? 
inconstant temptation to perjure thy soul in forsaking all for him. And if thou didst, would it bring happiness? My child, thou art absolved. Even had aught of promise passed between you. Knowest thou not that a maiden of herself hath no power to vow? Her father's will alone absolves it or confirms it. Thou dost him no wrong. Be Ferdinand's bride, and all shall be forgiven, all forgotten. Thou art my child, my Miriam's child once more. He pressed her again fondly to him, but though she made no reply, his arguments could not convince her. She had indeed told Arthur that she never could be his, but yet avowed that she loved him. And if he did meet her as the wife of another, what must he believe her? And Ferdinand, if he did so love her, that preoccupied heart was indeed a sad requital. She had, however, that evening, but little time to think. For ere either spoke again, the branches of the entrance of the tent were hastily pushed aside, and a tall manly form stood upon the threshold. Marie sprung to her feet with a faint cry. Could it be that the vow of an hour was already called upon to be fulfilled? But the intruder attributed her alarm to a different cause, and hastily flinging off his wrapping mantle and deep-plumed morion, he exclaimed, What? Alarmed by me, my gentle cousin? Dearest Marie, am I forgotten? And Enriquez, forgetting all of bodily exhaustion, all of mental suffering, in the deep joy his sudden appearance caused, could only fold the warrior in his feeble arms, and dropping his head to his shoulder, sob forth expressively, My son! My son! So once again, Grace Aguilar gives us another piece of the puzzle. It's very interesting. She keeps jumping backwards and forwards in time. But what it accomplishes, and what I really admire, is that it definitely draws you in. Our minds naturally crave to know what's going on, what is happening, who these people are. And so it's a little bit enthralling. And this chapter goes back to much more of an active tone. It's one scene that happens at one specific time, and we get back to dialogue for the first time since the second chapter. And we have this scene, this very painful scene, of Marie and her father Manuel. And the clear love they have for each other, that's struggling with death, with love, with her love of Arthur, with his love of Ferdinand and with her own love of Ferdinand, because it's clear that she does love him, but just not in a romantic way. And so this week, I want to talk a little bit more about the Jewish traditions, specifically the holidays that are mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. Because to the Jewish reader, the holidays that Grace Aguilar is referring to are quite clear. But I can imagine that for most people, it's very unclear. Now, Grace Aguilar also tells her reader what time of year this happens by saying it's happening around Michaelmas, which is a term that I personally had never heard before reading this book. But knowing these holidays, I can say that it's happening in the autumn, probably sometime in October. 
because the first holiday she mentions, the one with the hut or tent, is a holiday called Sukkot. The fall is really the holiday season for Jews. In the span of less than a month, we have three incredibly important holidays. The last of which is Sukkot. The fast that precedes it, which she mentions, is Yom Kippur, or Yom Kippur, as is the more anglicized version of that, which you may be familiar with. And then before that, we have the New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And these three holidays happen back to back to back, essentially. And they are some of the most important ones. So I want to just tell you a little bit about what goes into them and understand that every Jew celebrates these holidays differently. That depending on your denomination, depending on where you're from, depending on your customs, a lot of the details will change, but some things remain constant. And before that, you also need a little bit of reference on what a holiday means for Jews. Now, holidays aren't just days we take off from work. They're days that historically, and according to our texts and traditions, we are commanded not to work. And not working has a wide variety of meanings. More traditional Jews will abstain from electronics, they will abstain from using money, they will abstain from lighting fires. But the point is, is that holidays are days that are supposed to be drastically different from the ordinary days of the week. It goes back to our creation myth, to the divine act of separating, and in this case, separating the holy from the mundane. These are days which we actively push out the rest of the world and focus on ourselves, on our families, and our friends. Another thing which remains consistent amongst all Jews is that on every holiday that's not a fast, we make a truly egregious amount of food. And instead of just having one Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, we have pretty much every meal together. And it doesn't have to be just with a family. It's oftentimes with friends, with people from synagogue, with anyone who we want to spend these special days with. And so Rosh Hashanah are two days which we celebrate the new year. Days which many people go to synagogue to pray for a good and happy and healthy new year, in which we, again, eat a tremendous amount of food, and in which it's traditional to eat specifically sweet foods, honeys, to try a new fruit. But Rosh Hashanah is also the start of a period of time in which Jews look back at the year and at themselves. Our traditions tell us to ask ourselves what kind of year it's been, what we've done, the good and the bad, and to look critically at that. And this culminates in Yom Kippur. On this day, we fast. We spend the day asking for forgiveness. We ask forgiveness from God, but equally importantly, we ask forgiveness from other people. So much of the liturgy on this day is about recognizing what we've done wrong and in setting the will to doing better next year. It's a deeply powerful day, but even though this day is arguably the most important day in the Jewish calendar, all of our laws, all of our rabbis, tell us that if fasting is detrimental to your health, you are commanded not to do it. Jewish law holds the preservation of life as one of the most important values. 
and there are only a very, 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 very few laws which you cannot break in order to save a life. So when Grace Aguilar tells us that Manuel Enriquez fasted on this day, it could signal a lot of things. It could signal the fact that he didn't want his daughter to know. It could signal his stubbornness. It could signal just how crucial following these traditions are to him. And yet this solemnity, which she alludes to, is mixed in with the joy that she talks about when describing Sukkot. Now Sukkot is a holiday which, unlike the others, is much more explicitly a holiday celebrating the harvest and celebrating the natural world. The booth she describes erecting in Hebrew is called Esukkah, and many people do still hold the custom of spending most of their time in them. Much more frequent for families with a sukkah is to have every meal there. And if you live in an apartment in New York, you go there when you can. But the idea is to spend a week when you are surrounded by nature, where you are putting yourself in the elements. When she says that you could see the sky through the roof of the sukkah, that's actually an integral part in their building. A sukkah isn't kosher unless you can see the stars through the leaves and the branches on top. And by putting ourselves in the elements, it's a reminder not only of their beauty, but of the fragility and mortality in human nature. So it is joyful, but there is this bittersweet note in there, and that's a thread Grace Aguilar seems to pull from this and to elaborate on in this chapter. And by setting the action on Sukkot, she at once invokes this feeling in her Jewish audience, as well as providing a teaching moment for her Gentile audience, which is the kind of thing we've come to expect from her. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of The Vale of Cedars, and I can't wait to see you again for Chapter 7. This podcast was an IEA production. For additional resources, and to learn more about the other podcasts from IEA, go to aeaea.co.